Good morning. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ Church. If you do not have one of these return booklets, uh, they're really necessary. We hope you brought them back at the response tables, and then some of our ushers have them in the aisle for you. If you don't have one of these, we'd encourage you to please uh, just raise your hand and they'll get them to you because they're going to be necessary for taking notes and some information that we want to dispense to you. If you weren't here last week, uh, we unveiled the next two-year vision for our church, uh, some of the opportunities that are ahead of us, and some of the, as you can see on the stage, the doors that God is opening for us to enter into to do ministry in this community and make a difference. Uh, I want to recap for those of you that weren't able to be here. Uh, we talked about six initiatives or six doors that we want to walk through. Uh, one is a new church plant in South Joplin, and we're going to be giving you information in just the next two weeks about that. We're very excited about it, and Cody Walker, our campus planter, will be uh, here to talk to you about that church plant, what it's going to look like, and where it's going to be, and we're excited for that. Uh, we also had talked to you about a new student center. Uh, in addition to what we have across the parking lot there, uh, with the number of students we have in 5th through 8th grade, uh, we don't have the space necessary to teach them well and give them the same opportunity, so we're excited about what that might mean, and as Sam was introduced this morning, uh, we've made an investment as well in staffing for that. Uh, we want to talk to you about opportunities to increase our mission imprint across the globe. Um, we have some partnerships available to us that we think we should be investing in, and we're hoping that you're excited about that too. We want to add staff uh, to meet the needs of the growth at this church as well as the South Campus. We want to improve our facility, and we have a debt related to this particular room and the uh, early childhood area that we'd like to eliminate. We'd love to be debt-free in two years. Those six initiatives that we've laid in front of you, we called the return campaign. If you haven't been to the website or you weren't here last week, there is a 15-minute video that we want to really encourage everyone who attends here to watch that video online. Uh, it's been made available all week long, but please take an opportunity to make yourself aware of the initiative, the opportunities in front of us, and the challenge. But the question we want to answer this morning is, what do we gain if we do this? And uh, how do we get this done as a church? And so if you'll spend a few moments with me, and let's just watch this video, it'll answer some of those questions. How can you respond to the return challenge? There are three ways to respond. The first response is to pray. The return challenge started with a season of prayer by the leadership of Christ Church. We are inviting every family and every individual to pray about how God may be leading them to respond to this challenge. The second response is to simply be here. From October 20th to November 17th, we will be unpacking the return challenge in greater detail with our church family. Make it a priority to be here each Sunday. The third response, after praying and experiencing the return challenge weeks with the rest of the congregation, is to take that next step of trust. We want to ask each person to identify where they are and then take a step to move forward to a deeper level of trust. The first level is learning trust. You have not given to your church and you want to become generous towards God's kingdom. You might commit to giving financially and of your time and talents to see God's work done in your life. The next level is experiencing trust. 
You have given to your church, but not consistently. You might commit to giving regularly with an intention to serve others and bring glory to God. The next level is established trust. You give regularly to your church, but less than 10% of your annual income. You might want to take a step of responding to God with a tithe, 10% of your income, as an act of submission. The next level is sacrificial trust. You have learned the blessing of tithing 10% and want to grow in trusting God more in all things. You want to not only bring a tithe, but to be open and available to sacrificially use what you have been blessed with to serve God and experience His guidance. The final level of trust is abundant trust. You are investing in God's kingdom with generosity and sacrificial faith, and you might want to begin to give away more than you keep and live in the daily need for the Lord. Five levels of trust, and God is asking each of us to take the next step with Him. So at this point, you might be asking the question, what is it going to take to accomplish all of this? We are going to be challenging our congregation to a sacrifice of faith through a financial commitment over a two-year period of time, January 2014 through December 2015. Our goal is to raise commitments of $10 million over the next two years to fund our current general operating budget and to pursue the vision and initiatives we feel led to accomplish for God's glory. Here's how that actually breaks out. Our current yearly operating budget is approximately $3 million a year, which accounts for a total of $6 million for the two-year period of the return challenge. This is what it normally takes to operate our current ministries. The remaining $4 million would allow us to accomplish all the new initiatives. Anything over the $10 million goal at the end of the two years will be used to reduce our debt even further and free up our mortgage payments for further advancement of the new vision and ministries God has given us. So, instead of a general giving fund and a separate special return fund, it's all part of one fund. Everything we do is a part of the vision God has given us, and everything we give goes toward return. Each person or family will be given a commitment card to pray over. On November 17th, we will have a Commitment Sunday where our entire church family will complete and submit their cards in our worship services. This isn't just for buildings, new church plants, or more ministers. This is about creating new life in Jesus, developing disciples who make disciples, and impacting our generation and the generations yet to come in God's world and kingdom. We really want to encourage you to make it a priority to be here the next uh, four, counting today, the next four Sundays, that you would participate, and if you can't physically be here, that you'd go into the webpage and you'd listen to the messages, because this is not just, uh, I keep using it with the staff, this isn't an infomercial, this is an opportunity to do something in our lifetime, to plant a tree so the generation that follows us can be blessed in the same way we've been blessed with God's goodness. 
Uh, and so we want to encourage you that you can go to the webpage, listen to the messages, catch up on all the videos, make yourself aware of where we're going. And ultimately, our goal is that we'd have 100% participation in the return challenge. How do you participate? Well, physically, spiritually, financially, there's multiple ways. But the first way we're asking everyone to participate is for every family to take the card that's in the book. And you can see it. I have an example right here. To take this card and have a family conversation. So take it and have a discussion as, you're, as a family together what your family wants to do to help us open these doors and walk through these opportunities. If you did that, that would be the win I'm most after. Then what God does in each of our families in response to that is your win. It's your chance to take a step of trust. If you look on page 26 of the book, you'll see the, the graph that was used in the video clip. And someone asked a very, uh, very interesting question. They said, why do the doors get smaller? Well, because they're harder to get through. The more you step out in trust, the more you'll be challenged. And our walk with Jesus is not about money. Our walk with Jesus is about growing closer to him and trusting him more. You see, this isn't about what God wants from you. This is truthfully about what God wants for every one of us. And so we hope you'll have those conversations we hope you'll participate, and on November 17th is an act of worship. We're going to be asking every individual and or family to come as an act of worship and to respond, to make a choice about how they want to go through these doors or leave them closed. And so we hope the next few weeks you'll be getting the information you need to join us in participation. In my family, uh, for instance, there's three levels of trust development. Braden at age nine is going to be challenged to take a step of trust for himself to decide what he wants to do with his little tiny savings account and his allowance and how he wants to invest that. And then he'll learn how to experience trust for the first time. And for our oldest son, Alex, it's going to be a step that now that he has a college job and he's making a little bit of pocket change, what does he want to do with that to help his church? And then for Heather and I, it's another step of trust because we have to go from tithers to being more generous and more sacrificial in the process. So we're asking every family to have those conversations as a family. Don't, don't just individually choose. If we want everyone to grow, then everyone needs to be challenged. And so we hope you'll do that. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Jesus, we ask your blessings on your work, not ours. And we ask that you would move in each of our families, not, uh, not about a dollar amount. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by that figure, $10 million, but I'm not overwhelmed when I realize that what you want is for each of us to trust you more. So I pray that your spirit will work. I thank you for a generous church that meets our budget every year and allows us to have the resources to do ministry in our community. I thank you for that generosity, and I just pray that your will would be done in our church and that you would bring about what you want to see happen through this challenge. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to the 28th chapter of Matthew. We've been lying to you for the past three weeks, and I'm not about to apologize. Two weeks ago, we told you we were done with the message. And then last week, I said, well, I might want to add one more. Well, this is actually the last week of the message. Uh, and we built this all along. As we entered into the return, it was very important that we remembered where we were last week. We were on the beach with, with Jesus in John chapter 21 when Peter came in from fishing after his great night of failure when he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus, with fish grilled on the beach, says to Peter... Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter responded, you know I do, you know I do, 
Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. And what we talked about last week in the redemption and resurrection of Peter is that the return to Jesus is always and only going to be about his love. It is the question he's asking every one of us even today. Do you love me? And if the answer is yes, then he's going to give us the opportunity of a lifetime to not only return our soul to him, but to return our hands, our feet, our treasures, and everything. And so today, as we look at what his message was to his disciples in Matthew 28, I'm very familiar with verses 18, 19, and 20, but I need to become very familiar with verses 16 and 17 as we lead into this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Jesus was leaving them. If you remember, he said to them, I must go so that the Spirit can come, and this will be for your benefit. And he's preparing to go, and they're nervous. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, what? He's resurrected. He's got holes in his wrist and holes in his feet. and He's got a scar on his side where he was pierced with the sword. You know it's Jesus. How can you worship him in doubt? But in the English construction, it's easy for us to see that and say, well, you know, some weren't believing and others were. And I don't believe that's what Matthew's telling us. I think some of them doubted, but I doubt that they were doubting in Jesus because they saw him die. Who were they doubting in? Themselves. Doesn't that make sense? It does to me. If I see the resurrected Jesus and I see what he just overcame and now Jesus is going back to be with the Father, where are my doubts going to lie? In Jesus? No, in my ability to stay alive. Because if I'm Peter and I just had a massive Thursday night failure... What makes you think Monday's going to be any better? The doubt, the questions, the fear, the insecurities were not in who Jesus was or they wouldn't have worshipped him. It was in who they are and what they'll be like when he's not around anymore. Does that make sense to you? Sure makes sense to me. Because I know on my best day I'm not very good. And following Jesus, there's an opportunity here. They said they doubted. The word means uncertainty, hesitation, or indecision. He was leaving. They were worried. And he said, I want you to go to such and such a city and I want you to wait and I'm going to send my spirit on you. You see, what Jesus does here in verse 18 is contingent upon our understanding of verses 16 and 17. In verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, I don't think any of us doubt that that's true. I don't think in a church building, if I stood up and said, Jesus has all authority, someone's going to go, "Huh, uh-uh. Most people are going to go, yeah, that's why I'm here. But when did he say what he said? He claims his authority when his disciples are most worried about their inabilities. Doesn't that make sense? Jesus is saying, listen, if you know who I am, what I'm about to ask you to do is not based on you, it's based on me. Jesus didn't ask us to obey him because we were good or better in obedience. Jesus asked them to obey him because he had the authority. If we do what Jesus asks, it'll work. Church, how about that? If we do what he asks, it'll work. If we don't do what he asks, nothing will work. Do you remember Jesus prayed to his father and he said, all that you've given me to do, I've done. If we will live our lives in obedience to God, like Jesus lived his life in obedience to God, then the authority of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, and the power of Jesus Christ is ours to change the world. If we base it on our own ability and our own cleverness and our own words, we have no authority 
and the world will not listen. He said, all authority. We return by his love and we respond by faith through obedience. Because Jesus is about to challenge them with his authority. Verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 begins with a very significant word, therefore. You know whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what's it there for? He said, because of my authority, I'm going to give you something to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. By my authority, he says, I am going to give you this task. First task, our mission. Our mission is to offer a life of discipleship through our witness. Why are you here to bring glory to God? How do you bring glory to God? By offering a life of discipleship to Jesus Christ, plain and simple. The key verse, or the key verb rather, in verse 19 is to make disciples. Why are you here? To make disciples of yourself and of others. We get off mission, don't we? I've been using this deep spiritual imagery with the staff the past couple of weeks. We have a playbook. Too many of us have plays that aren't designed for what we're here for. We get caught up in doing all of these things that we're not asked to do. When we are asked to run the play he gave us, and the play is to make disciples. And all the other verbs are subservient to that. The going, the baptizing, and the teaching are all for what purpose? When you go, make disciples. When you baptize, baptize them not into your church. Baptize them into the kingdom of Jesus. And when you teach, teach what Jesus taught. And for 86 weeks, we've studied that. What did he ask us to do? It's our mission. We're to introduce people to the resurrected Jesus Christ and give them the reason that we follow by baptizing and teaching them to observe. The, the half-brother of Jesus, James, said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Go, observe, obey, learn, teach. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. When we invite people into the kingdom of heaven, don't invite them into your church. Invite them to the one who founded the church, and then the church will make sense. When we invite people into a church setting, and they don't know who Jesus is, we look like a bunch of weirdos. But when you invite them into the church because of Jesus, we look like a bunch of weirdos who get Jesus. I'd take the second one over the first one every week. People come in here and go, really? You give your money and you give your time and you come in and you do this every week? Yeah. Why? Because it's a great church? No, because Jesus is worth it. You see, it's one satisfied customer offering another customer the deal of a lifetime. This is what Jesus called us to do. It is my mission. It doesn't matter how you make your money. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. Can you introduce people and invite them into a life of discipleship with Jesus Christ? Then you're a person on mission. So some of us say, well, I need to get into ministry. No, no. Work where you work and talk about the Jesus you work for. This is what he's called us to do. Paul says something amazing. Paul was in a town called Ephesus in the book of Acts. And he got run out of Ephesus, and he met with the elders on a beach before he loaded into a boat. And he was going to preach in Jerusalem, and he knew that the message he would preach would get him arrested. And he knew, he, he pretty much assumed it would cost him his life. And he said these words to those elders on that beach. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. 
Paul said, my life is worth nothing unless I'm doing what he asked me to do, and that is to offer him to anybody who will listen to me. To the Romans, Paul wrote to the churches in Rome, under great persecution, he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Now, let's please just just burst the bubble of awkwardness. The word preaching used by Paul there is not what I'm doing now. Well, it is, but it isn't all that it's being done. The word preaching means to proclaim. It means to share your hope. It means to share your purpose. It means to share your reason. It's to invite them. To invite them into a relationship with Jesus Christ where they become a learner and then a doer. Not just someone who listens, but someone who lives it out. Someone who trusts Jesus enough to be obedient when they can't always see it match up. See, how can they expect someone to follow Jesus when they haven't heard effectively about him? Because for many of us, we've turned Jesus into a proposition of how to behave. No, he's a man to love. He's one to honor. And he gives you a life that's challenging but very beneficial. See, when you go to work tomorrow and you walk in the office and you say good morning to the people you see every morning or you make a a call on one of your sales calls and you walk into an office and you see that receptionist, Jesus didn't ask us to open a Bible and bring out a 20-minute sermon. He asked us to administer the love of Christ. He asked us to witness to the fact of our hope and our joy, and the blessings of being with God. You see, everyone is a creature of God, but not everyone's a child of God. Everyone's aware of God, but not everyone's a follower of God. And we must give them the opportunity to escape what's in front of them if they don't know who Jesus is and they don't understand what he's offered them. For many of us, we're threatened now because the minute a preacher starts preaching about what we ought to do, we either enter into guilt and say, I don't do it enough, I'm a horrible at it, or we say, that's not for me to do. Listen to what he said. All authority, if you know who I am, then doing what I ask you to do will work. If you don't know who I am, you won't do what I ask. But if you do know who Jesus Christ is, isn't obedience a loving response? based on what he can do with it, not what I can do with it. In Acts, Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. There's only one qualification for being a witness. You have to have firsthand knowledge. To witness in a court of law, you had to be there. So what has Jesus asked us to do? To witness to the power of the resurrected Jesus. Can you do that? I know I can, and I know you can too. Let me give you some options. Has Jesus taught you how to free yourself from guilt? Church, talk to me. Has Jesus showed you the way to real life and not a phony, fake existence? Has Jesus taken the guilt off of you by his stripes on the cross so that you can live free knowing you and God are good? Then you can witness. Once again, it's not about behavior modification. It's about Jesus modification. And I now can live a open, free life with all my failures exposed. No more hiding because my God is good and my Jesus Christ paid the price. And that Jesus who paid the price came from death to life and he's coming back to get us all and I'm betting my life on it. See, my testimony is simple. I've caused too much problems for myself. I've been disobedient. 
I've been ignorant by choice. I've been willful by choice. I've walked away from my responsibilities. I've mistreated people. I've allowed addictions and sin into my life that overtook me. I've had all of that in my life, and Jesus Christ set me free. That's not just the story. It's my story. And as someone would say, why are you a Christian? I can tell them. Because it's not about what might happen one day. It's about what's already happened so far. My Jesus Christ is real. How about yours? And all he said is, go witness that. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, now go and, and tell them about the Levitical code. Ick. And he says, and, and don't run them through the 97 kings of Israel. Oh, who, no, I don't care. What people today want to know is, is there something to live for? Is there a God who really cares about us, who is active in our lives and cares about our daily condition? And my answer is yes. And how do I know? Because I'm a satisfied customer. Because I know what he's done in my life, and I know what he can do in yours. And then Jesus gives us the ultimate security, verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Not only does he say we have the authority that if we're obedient, he'll get it done. But he'll never abandon us or leave us. And he's going to be there at the end when we get there. Just like he promised. So our method, our, if our mission is to offer people the chance to follow Jesus, our method is by trusting his promises and obedience. The world is going to be looking to find out if you really believe by the way you choose to live your life. Do you trust Jesus enough to let his return and his authority change your world? In 2 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul said, For the love of Christ compels us. It's where obedience and trust come from. And he said, I am with you always. And do I trust that enough to make every choice, every decision of every day of my life based on that? How I spend my time, how I spend my energy, how I invest my treasures. Does the return of Jesus mean enough to me that I want to be ready when he comes? I want to be awake. I want to be alive. I want to have hope. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus came and he turned his entire life into the hands of his father. At the end of his life, he said to his father, I have done the work. It is finished. Everything you asked me to do, I offered you back. And then he returned home. So Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. That by the authority of Jesus Christ, we have a message to offer. And the message is Jesus. And that he will fulfill that. He will bring that about. So I want to give you two pieces of good news that every one of us should be able to testify to. And if you can't testify to it, then I ask you to fall into it with absolute trust and you will be able to. First is this. Only Jesus fulfills us. Now what I mean by that is, listen, for some of us, drugs and alcohol have fulfilled us or numbed us. It got us through. For some, it's relationships. For some, it's money and power. And we've been fulfilled. But does it last? No. It's temporary at very best. But only Jesus fulfills us. In John 10, Jesus said, I have come so that you might have life and have it to the fullest. But it's not life measured by the way the world measures it. It's not a life that's measured by fame and fortune. It's a life that's measured by peace, by shalom, by an understanding that no matter what this world brings, my God is bigger, my God is better, and my God will supply all of my needs through Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I have life. Do you want life? So I ask you this morning, do you know anybody in your world who's looking for fulfillment? Hey, do you know anybody who's looking for love in all the wrong places? That's why we're here. 
so we can show them where it really comes from. Because the world's offering them a momentary satisfaction, and so many of us don't know anything more than momentary satisfaction that we have no clue about real satisfaction. And that's by trusting the Lord, he said, I will bring you a full life. And only Jesus offers us freedom. See, Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be really free. So a full life and freedom, freedom from what? How about freedom from damaged relationships? How many people in this church, and this is a rhetorical question, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I, I can tell you, how many families in this church have been restored, redeemed, and fixed because of Jesus Christ? It's, it's not been because of, of good this or good that or it's a better church. No, it's because Jesus Christ is real. And when you fall back on Jesus as your only means of escape, you will escape. How many people know what it is to be freed from a bad habit? or a poor community, or from memories that haunt you every day, to be freed and released. You see, free from the guilt of the past, free from resentment, free from bitterness, boredom, free from the expectation of others, freedom to be what God wants you to be. In Romans 6.23, Paul says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift, notice this, the gift from God is eternal life in who? In Jesus Christ. And if you have been set free, you are free indeed. But only Jesus can set you free from the price that you brought on your own head. So how do we live out this call? How do we live out this great commission? If being on mission is to offer people a chance to follow Jesus into life, and we do that by the way we live, then I want to share with you two scriptures this morning as the challenge of how we return back to Jesus all that he's given to us. Titus 2.10, show that you can be fully trusted so that in every way you will make the teachings about God attractive. Here's our homework this week. Start living with some joy. I don't mean fake joy. Don't go around just being a sickening, uh, I don't know how to say the word, a sickening happy person. You know what I mean? The person who's happy when you can't be happy, but you can have joy anytime. Paul says to Titus, live your life in such a way that obedience to God is your pleasure, not your punishment, not your duty, not your penance. Live, trust the Lord. Live in such a way that as a satisfied customer, we can go into this world and say, I would have no other life but then with Jesus and mean it. And how do you know that? By take a step of trust. Learn what it means that Jesus will be there at the end fully. And then Peter, of all the disciples, to tell us what the new life looks like, Peter wrote these words to the early church. Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope that you have in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. I love that. Peter didn't know what gentleness was until he met Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit filled him, Peter said, here's the key. Live in such a way that people know what you're dying for so that when you die, you have something to live for. There's a parable that's told of four men were struggling through this real dense forest and they were being frustrated by the overgrowth and, the, and all the pain and endurance that they were going through and they came to a wall and they heard noise on the other side of the wall so they fashioned a vine rope and they threw it to the top and they got it hooked and they, one guy climbed to the top and he looked down with a big smile on his face. He yelled out with joy and he leapt over the wall and they could hear him land on the other side and squeal with delight. 
Next guy climbed up on top and he looked down and pumped his fist in the air and jumped in and they heard him, the reunion on the other side and the great joy and laughter. And the third one climbed to the top and he looked down at the fourth one and he said, get up here, get up here. And he dove in. The fourth one climbed the rope and got to the top and he looked down. He saw this beautiful garden full of anything you could ever want. It was so lush and, and beautiful and the sun was shining. It was a great day in that garden. And he looked down, he saw his three friends down there celebrating, enjoying every bit of it. And he stopped and he climbed back down the rope and headed back through the woods. Because what he did was he made the choice to go make sure others knew what was on the other side of that wall. He didn't just jump in and enjoy it because he knew that that garden of promise would be there when he got back. So he made sure that everyone he cared about knew. And I think in that parable, we've just understood what the Great Commission is all about realizing that Jesus will be on the other side of that wall. But let's go bring others to know what he offers every one of us. Let's stand together.